happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that is homed, housed, is the word I'm looking for, on the University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And this is episode 85 of the EdTech Situation Room for February 7th, 2018. And joining me as always from Oklahoma City, it's Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you? I am well, soon to be Dr. Jason Neifer. And you were sporting the tie the other night. It's my turn. So home from uh, little little presentations and uh, actually doing more of that tomorrow night. So it's a busy time. We'd love you to send snow our way because our chances for a snow or ice day appear to be negligible here in Central North America. Well, I got to say, I, I, I would send some to you, except that we don't ever get a snow or ice day. So that's I my entire K-12 education. I had a power out day once because wind took out power in the, in my entire city in the middle of the wintertime once. But other than that, I did not have a snow day my entire K-12 academic career. So I, I, I don't even know what such things are, even though I live in the middle of uh, blustery Montana. So, uh, lots of interesting news going on. Wes, where would you like to start uh, with our show tonight? I think uh, I'll start with The Verge, January 25th. It's like, Alex, I'll take Verge for 500 um, The article is, Google Chrome now lets you permanently mute annoying websites. I am so excited about this because it does, it's not every day and all the time, but Websites that have the auto-playing videos and are just, you know, challenging to stop. Um, you can now opt in uh, with the newest version of Chrome. And it allows, it says, it's the ability to mute sites that auto-play videos. Um, and so it is just something that you can, I guess, you can mute a tab. I didn't realize this. I should have learned it probably from your uh, your G-Camp little tip. So you can two-finger tap. And in addition to pinning tabs, you can mute tabs. But... Anyway, glad to see that Chrome is adding that, and I – is Chrome the number one browser now? It is, isn't it? Hasn't it beaten It out? is, yeah. And I, it, at one point, it was like high 70s, early 80s, and I think that, that it's lost a little bit of ground, especially since Microsoft Edge has uh, um, uh, regained some ground. I'm almost certain in the next six months that Firefox will regain some ground as well, but – um, actually, I have a, something kind of related to that. Uh, I, I've been working on a very long Google Doc. Um, and actually, I work on several long Google Docs as part of both my day job and some of my individual projects. And I noticed something really interesting the other day. I was on a Windows machine, uh, fast Windows machine, fast processor, fast i5 processor, 16 gigs of RAM. This is not a slacker machine by any stretch of the imagination. And the large Google Doc, it was 75 pages long, was really sluggish on the Chrome browser. And I do have the latest version of Firefox uh, installed, but the newest versions uh, in the last three months have been uh, Firefox Quantum. Quantum, which is their new uh, recoded from scratch browser. And I'm shocked to report that Google Drive and Google Docs was much crisper and felt a lot snappier than it did on Google Chrome. And it's interesting that you should mention the innovation that, that Google Chrome, I think, pushes into the marketplace. And I think that the speed question, which used to Chrome, used to dominate Internet Explorer when that uh, uh, battle started over a decade ago. And it seems like now other browsers are at least catching up or surpassing Chrome when it comes to the kind of snappiness that used to be the hallmark of the Chrome browser. Now, of course, I have, you know, a dozen plugins and extensions that uh, could be impacting that. That's certainly something that could be the case. But I am shocked to report that not that I'm you know going to become a full time uh, Firefox user. Frankly, when I'm on a Windows machine, I use all three browsers pretty regularly because the web is not as cross compatible as one might uh, like or, or desire. But at the same time, um, I was shocked to find out that Firefox was a snappier uh, delivery mechanism of Google Docs. We're going to do a shout out to Scott, who's in our chat room and had a snow day. Terribly jealous of you, Scott. Um, I did just drop in the link to our link. So for anybody viewing live or listening, you can check those out at edtechsr.com slash links. And we are certain to not get to everything. And so if you would like to do additional reading, there it is, but 
Jason, do you want to, I think you want to talk hardware a little bit tonight. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, bits of hardware over the last two weeks that I, I'd like to talk about. Uh, the first one is more or less a, um, a rest in peace uh, article. The Verge reported last week on, on January 27th that the Pebble um, watch platform is now dead. And for those of you unaware of the Pebble, the Pebble was a very early smartwatch. It was a Kickstarter project that raised a lot of money really quickly because of the novelty of the design. And essentially it's an LDC or LDC LCD screen on a smartwatch that involves physical buttons. And after the Pebble was initially funded, they did have a couple of successive generations and eventually had a whole variety of smartwatches that um, were really very advanced. They had week to week and a half long battery life. Uh, the screens were becoming higher resolution, even though they remained um, uh, uh, LCD screens, the wrong word. I'm looking for a, well, it was like an e-ink screen, uh, like you'd have on a Kindle. So it was a black and white screen, which meant that the battery life was wickedly long, a week, week and a half, sometimes two weeks in time. And over time, Pebble started introducing new pieces of hardware into it, including health tracking, uh, a hardware, more software to take advantage of that, and more compatibility across different smartphones. And eventually, the Pebble company um, was purchased and uh, essentially shut down. I think it was the, the people that run... Um, 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 Fitbit bought that particular platform, but after the company was purchased, they did announce that eventually uh, Pebble would stop working because they required some server-side software to make that happen, and The Verge uh, last week announced that that it's it's now done for good that the pebble is is dead and to be able to run the pebble you would need to to hack the firmware to create something new of which there are many options. The reason why I wanted to mention this is because I think it's very interesting that smart watches didn't take off um, as much as maybe some people perceived they would. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is because the battery life is just not as much as, as I think people need it to be for it to be a, a, a good use of both money and space on your arm. I'm personally a Fitbit wearer. This is a, a newer generation of a Fitbit. I honestly don't know what I would do without this. This is critical data for me that I utilize. And I also get a lot of competitive juices flowing because I have a couple of different groups that I compete with uh, friends from high school I'm particularly competitive with uh, in getting steps each week and I have an Android smartwatch I like the Android smartwatch but it didn't allow me to get the kind of competitive piece of the step getting that was been very critical for me in in trying to be a, a healthy person and I also like the fact that this lasts at least a week or more on battery life and the pebble just seemed always so clever to me I never purchased one I was tempted uh, right at the end of life of, of pebble before they announced the, the shutdown of the services. I almost bought a refurbished one that was really nice, actually, and a beautiful uh, watch face, and it had uh, changeable bands, really great. But I'm sad to see that that hardware has gone away because I just don't think there's an alternative of folks that are looking at the smartwatch a little differently than mainstream Android watches and, of course, the Apple Watch. So I have to ask, Wes, have you yet been tempted by a smartwatch? Actually, I have, and uh, you might be amused to know it's more in the Android flavor. Um, I want to do a shout-out to Di Barnes and Doug Belshaw, who have the Today in Digital Education podcast, the Tide podcast at tidepodcast.org. In their episode 95 from January 26th, uh, Doug mentioned, I'd never heard of this before, the AmazeFit BIP smartwatch, and this is only $60. Um, I'll drop this link into the chat, and then I'll put it on our show notes as well. But um, I guess I'm just getting kind of cheap. I don't know exactly what, what all it is, but um, I just don't – I don't have – <laughs> much disposable income now with, uh, you know, one in college, et cetera. And so this is a, evidently a very capable, you know, Android compatible smartwatch. I think that, you know, the fitness tracking side of this is definitely where a lot of the appeal is. I, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I, I do love technology and I fancy myself as an early adapter, but I was holding off on the Apple watch actually until it, would do FaceTime video conferencing because I thought that that's really it where you can right there, you know, independently FaceTime. 
Um, but you know, this, the cost and, and everything, and, and this would be like 60 bucks. So I am tempted by it. I will say also my friend James Deaton, and this was probably three or four years ago, had picked up a, a pebble that was used and he was, I mean, I think he even got it at Target or something. And so, you know, you could pick, pick, pick one of these up for not, not that many bucks. And so anyway, I guess this, this bit am amaze fit bip watch or, uh, yeah, watch looks, I think it looks a bit like a knockoff, um, product who knows but it's it looks very apple watch like so we will see we'll we'll ask our chat room what what you all are are doing now with the with watches are you are you finding yourself using it for more than the fitness tracking jason like as far as like this is awesome or is fitness pretty much the main fitness is pretty much the the thing for me i mean i i do have it send me like phone call like it'll it'll run the the caller id on my phone that's useful i do like the fact that it tracks uh the standing heart rate or resting heart rate because that's a, a fitness measure for me and i can definitely tell the difference when i'm eating right i'm getting exercise versus the times when i'm not doing so much and so that's a useful tracker for me but you know i really love my android watch i have a um a LG Watch Urbane uh, version one is the Android watch I have. And I'll tell you that one of the reasons why I love that so much was that it allowed me to do two-factor authentication on it. Like, I'd be near my phone, but I was able to, you know, say yes to two-factor authentication um, on the phone screen, right? And so um, I, I, we've talked about two-factor authentication here in the past on the podcast. It's something I, that's now on every work system um, that I can turn it on for. And I'm really excited that, that there is a really great way for me to utilize that particular security tool and not have to have my phone, you know, literally in my hand to be able to authorize logins to different systems. But um, otherwise, you know, uh, that was really my main use for that. I like controlling music. I liked, uh, I kind of liked some of the, um, the, uh, uh, mapping features on it, but the bottom line was that the thing that's most important for me is not just tracking steps because the watch, the Ur- Urbane did that, but being able to connect with others to share step totals to be accountable. And so, and, and perhaps to share the classified military installations where you've been deployed as a former SEAL to give them advice and. That was a pretty interesting headline. We didn't. I don't. I don't know if that was before our show or whatever, right? But all the aggregated fit, fitness tracking and the Department of Defense, you know, handing out Fitbits and probably some culpability on the part of that company um, that released all of that. But right. I, it, it was because it was a, a college student in Australia who grabbed the data and said, "Hmm, I wonder what this, you know, light this." Uh, well, well treaded area in the middle of uh, of an African country that's otherwise fairly dark in terms of fitness tracking might right. be. Oh, it's a U.S. military installation. Well, and so to to pick back up pick back up on that story, and Gadget reported on January 29th that um, the Pentagon is reviewing policies because there was a certain fitness app that's called a Strava uh, that allows you to track. Uh, exercise, and it had been very popular, I think, amongst the super fitness crowd, which I can't speak for Wes, but I can assure you that I am not a member of the super fitness crowd. But the Strava app uh, did things like aggregate where people were running and exercising, and they released a massive open map um, that showed all of the places where people were uh, essentially running um, and and highlighted places that were like common running trails. And as it turns out, they did it on a map, not unlike Google Maps, where you could focus in on areas. And as it turns out, a number of places that were otherwise not on the map were showing up and they utilized the open map project to to lay over that particular data. And a lot of people think, although there's been no official word of what these sites are, that they were CIA black ops sites, uh, unknown military bases, and other American military assets. And a lot of times if you, you know, scooted in on there, it would look like a dirt airport with some buildings around it. And those don't always mean CIA black ops site, right? But the nature of who was there, the fact it was maybe the only one in the region denoting that perhaps Americans or Westerners uh, were utilizing that spot and the fact that it was a common exercise location, which you might assume on an American military base that's in the middle of nowhere, uh, that let those pieces go. And so the Pentagon now is thinking about, by the way, you could turn that functionality off. Like, it's not like that functionality was required. Um, there is a lot of people that have been um, focusing on criticizing Stradva both for releasing that information as part of a, a kind of open data project, but more importantly, um, because they uh, didn't defer that off to give you a choice. 
dropped in on that, that, that tracking back with the company. So Wes, do you visit any CIA back black ops uh, locations with your smartwatch or smartphone? I do not. And I have really, you know, I'm, I'm not, not carrying an iPhone anymore, but that was my fitness tracker. And, um, know that I exceeded all previous records when we had our arts festival here back in April. And uh, had I known the amount of steps I would have taken, I would have definitely worn hiking boots and not, you know, uh, casual loafers or whatever that day. So yeah. I, I haven't, but um, I don't know. I'm, um, oh, we're, we're actually on a note of personal wellness, um, you know, still we're not paying to, to use a personal trainer, which we, we actually did my wife and I this last last semester, um, but still have our, our membership and are managing uh, at least a couple times a week. But um, boy, it's, it's so important. And, and if, if those things are encouraging um, in terms of personal accountability and goal setting and all that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's vital. It's important. And the whole biofeedback, right. I, I haven't had a lot of experience with that, um, but I know it probably depends on your personality as well and in competitive right. and th things like that. And there's ways to gamify that with others. I, I definitely know having some accountability with someone else, be that your significant other, a friend, you know, it can be a factor as far as keeping up your regimen of, of, uh, of engagement with sure. activity. Well, let's go maybe to a couple more hardware articles here. Um, this one is, it's been super interesting to me. Apple finally released their HomePod, which is their home smart speaker. And there's been a lot of media on this. And I only am pointing out one article from The Verge. And I've read probably maybe five, six, seven reviews in the last 48 hours on the HomePod. There's a couple of things that are interesting to me. First, um, almost every article that I've read has pointed to the fact that Siri is well behind other intelligent personal assistance on development of functionality and that comes out loud and clear on the HomePod. While it's probably novel and interesting to have Siri available and I still think one differentiator for Siri is the fact that it, it, it accesses the Wolfram Alpha database which is a, a wonderful wonderful tool for answering a lot of factual science questions that I think the Google Google probably does but you know it may or may not be as effective I think as that, that Wolfram Alpha database. But basically the consensus is that this is an amazing speaker that sounds unreal and, and uses some very advanced technology, including apparently sensing the room and trying to cancel out, cancel out other noise in the room, really impressive stuff. But the actual home speaker, the home intelligence speaker part of that is, is, is pretty, pretty dim. But I want to point out a couple things about the Verge review of this because we talk a lot about, uh, uh, home assistant speakers here on the podcast is that a lot of, uh, most of the reviews I've noticed have talked about the fact that it kind of locks you into the Apple music, uh, uh, universe as opposed to allowing you to utilize something like Spotify, Google Play Music, Tidal, or any of the streaming services. Now, I want to be, you know, clear here. You can always, you know, airplay to that device, right? Like it's a, it's an airplay speaker, so you can utilize the Apple airplay structure to send music to that, but you can't ask the speaker to start playing music on your behalf. And so that kind of ecosystem lock which Apple is kind of famous for comes out loud and clear in this night or in this 2018 offering. So you're a Google Home home, right? Yes, we are. And you know, the price of this is just it's it's pretty staggeringly different, right? In order to yes. get two home pods, you're gonna spend seven hundred dollars. We spent a hundred and twenty bucks and we have four Google Home minis. And I am not an audiophile, but I'm I'm listening to music and, you know, podcasts and it's, it sounds fine. So I, I am, uh, I think these are just, just as the, the, the iPhone going to a thousand dollars seemed to be a bit of a, of a tipping point for us personal, for me personally. Um, I don't, I don't know how Apple is going to remain competitive if they can't be competitive in the, the AI, um, smart assistant realm because, you know, Sonos has some really amazing speakers. I guess the Google Home Max is pretty amazing. I mean, there's going to be amazing speakers and, and it's great if it does a better job of analyzing the room acoustics, but what you can ask it and the ability to, you know, be your, uh, your, hopefully not your Howl 9000 or whatever, but you know, your home, being able to speak to your smart home and, and have it do compelling things. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be, if we believe 
uh, Sundar Pichai as big a deal as electricity and fire in defining our society. We talked about that last week. So Google has, or sorry, Apple has just got to up its game in that. And I, you know, I haven't seen the announcements that, that indicate it is. So I just, I kind of, I, and I really don't see this as relevant at all to schools either, right? I don't think that, you know, having having the HomePod is, that obviously it's not a target market, but it's just, I don't think it has any relevance for the classroom. Yep, there you go. Um, let's see, a couple other hardware stories that are interesting this this uh, time of year. Uh, Vlad Savoff on the Circuit Breaker blog at Verge uh, wrote a really interesting post last week. I thought it might inspire a little bit of discussion in light of your recent switch over to Android. But basically he argues that 64 gigabytes is now not enough for cell phone storage. And this article piqued my interest for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which my in-laws, which are both iPhone 6S users, have recently reported to me that they are running out of space on their phones, even though that they're not super app downloaders, they're not super picture takers, uh, they're not storing music and video on their phones, but the app bloat, and they're 16 gigabyte phones, by the way, uh, app bloat and the slow expansion of media that is on their phone from their own creation that they're not quite ready to trust things like uh, Apple Photos and Google Photos to say, oh, yeah, I've backed this up to the cloud. We're going to nuke these off your phone. And uh, this particular article talks about the fact that 4K video is now being shot on phones, storing even 1080p video clips on your phone is going to take up space. And we ourselves are creating so much media that your phone fills up very quickly with that stuff. In addition to the fact that there's also app bloat, a lot of apps now, high-end media apps, sometimes even social media apps can be upwards of a... Um, uh, a gigabyte of space um, on your phone, which is extraordinary in light of the fact that I remember the days of 1.4 uh, 4 megabyte floppy disks, right, that uh, could store thousands of pages of documents, right? Um, and that, you know, we need to start, to, it, it advises end users that you need to max out the amount of memory that, that you can afford, uh, and by memory I mean storage, um, on your phone. Um, and then also telling manufacturers it's time to step up your game and allow for higher and higher space capacity on phones. So this is an interesting session to me with you, Wes, because you're a recent uh, a ship jumper between the Apple product and now the Google Android phone. And your phone, I, I'm pretty sure, has an interesting uh, feature that Apple phones or Apple made phones do not, which is you can put in an SD card into your phone and expand its storage. So um, I didn't know the answer to this, but have you taken advantage of that, sir? Yes, I have. In fact, I, I just pulled mine up, and, and I have uh, a 120-gig SD card. Um, I was not initially as savvy as I should have been in terms of apps and, and putting them over there. So I have a 32-gig um, Moto what G+, plus, what is it, G4+, plus, I think. And I've used about 31 of 32 gigs of internal storage. And so I the rule of thumb for hard drives used to be like 10% free that you would want to keep 10% of your hard drive free. Otherwise, you know, your machine was going to run pretty slow. So I don't think that rule of thumb applies to smartphones and SSDs in the same way that it did, but you certainly do want to keep some free. And so I need to move a few things over and yeah, it's a huge deal, right? So 32 gig phone, but no problem. Just, you know, toss the SD card in there and you've got your extra onboard storage. And so that's fantastic. I think it's, I think it's great. And, uh, I'm glad to be able to take advantage of it because again, I'm not, I kind of miss the, the higher quality um, speakers, the higher quality microphone, and the higher quality camera, but you know, this has enabled me to do basically everything that, that I want to do to include using, you know, my favorite app, um, which for photography, which is the uh, HDR pro app. And I, I shot what was probably one of the best sunrises I've ever shot before. And it was, you know, with this phone the other day. So I think it's good. Um, and, and this is the March of technology and this is related to schools, right? We are still using 16 gig iPad twos in some classrooms and we've got some fourth generation iPads, but you know, we really need to make that decision, um, as a school and a department about when, when is the, you know, useful life of, of this device going to expire. And the fact that we're, we're, 
you know, limited, especially with respect to video and, but also apps. Um, it's, it's a big limiting factor. So Apple made that switch to the, for the iPad to say 32 gig is the, the new standard. So, you know, it's just part of the continuing march of technology, just like we've seen RAM, but things actually have kind of, you know, leveled out with that, right? I think four gigs, eight gigs of RAM has been kind of a standard now. And you don't hear people clamoring for 16 and 32 and more unless, you know, you're wanting to get a new iMac or, you know, you're just a super hardcore video and, and desktop, you know, graphics and that kind of stuff. Yep. So. Okay. And there was one other article I also want to talk about for, for amusement more than anything else. Um, Intel is now working or it has been working on new smart glasses. And the differentiating feature of these is you don't look like an idiot wearing them. And so I will refer you to the article link, which is again on our website at techsr.com where you can get all of our show notes each week and every article we talk about and probably a whole lot of articles we don't ever get to uh, because uh, of our, our huge list. But you go to this particular article, which is also by The Verge. Apparently it's Verge Week here on the podcast. And this is from February 5th. They have pictures of these new interesting um, smart glasses, but they just look like, well, I mean, they just make you look like a hipster, right? Like a big, thick hipster glasses, um, and not something that's kind of forward looking. And I'm reminded about the Google Glass phenomenon, which is five years old now, six years old. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, they, they never really caught on, at least, well, they caught on for a while amongst the, the, the geek elite. And then for a while, for about 18 months, uh, first a little bit of a dwindle, then, uh, you know, a large minority of people were either wearing them or super excited to see a pair of them, and then they started dwindling off. But one of the biggest problems with those early uh, Google Glass uh, smart glasses was that they, well, they look, didn't look super great, and they also uh, had a lot of privacy uh, potential problems there. And these new smart glasses from Intel uh, first look like regular glasses, again, with a hipster vibe to them, but then secondarily, there's no camera on them, which was one of the larger objections to Google Glass. So, uh, Wes, I, I have to ask you very tersely, were you a glass hole? <laughs> well, Felix Giacomino down in Florida actually loaned me a set of Google Google Glasses. I had trouble with my iPhone pairing and getting everything to work seamlessly. If I had been an Android user at the time, I think I'd probably have had a better experience. So I just dabbled a little bit, but it was hard to see. I mean, and I wear glasses, right? So it, yeah. it would have been hard to see that unless you were going to do a full prescription. And I, I don't know. We, we've got folks who want to do the whole life casting mm-hmm. sort of thing. But, you know, short of that, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's that big of a deal to pull your phone out of your pocket when you when you want to shoot some video. So sure. it was a novelty. Um, but there's now this wasn't the one about the retina. Was it, There was an article, too, wasn't there, as far as... A technology was this the this yeah this is it where it actually beams it on your retina, is that right? right? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Pretty wild, right? This is the transhuman theme that we we talk about. We're we're becoming transhuman. Our we're merging with machines, and increasingly these are going to, you know, be options for people you know built in that you're not going to talk about screen time because the screen's going to be inside your body. So, right. Yeah. Here we go. So I would add one other thing to this. I, I still think that, and in fact, Google Glass still exists as a project um, at Alphabet. Uh, they have focused their efforts on industrial applications and, and high-tech things like surgery as opposed to kind of consumer products. But I do think that that's the, one of the things here that is missed oftentimes with these uh, notions of smart glasses, they're not really intended for 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 uh, end users. And this is one of those times I'll include Wes and I in the list of end users, even though neither of us are really standard users by any stretch of the imagination. But I do strongly believe that this notion of having that augmented reality for the purposes of doing industrial things, right? Um, adding data during um, uh, times when a data stream could be useful to you while maintaining your full field of vision. There's something really important there. And it's interesting, the, um, 
you know, the, the smartwatches didn't seem to really take off, although, and I, I forgot to put the article in today, but there's been a slight uptick in uh, Apple Watch sales, and it's it's trending upward again as opposed to stagnating. Um, that's a sign of something, but, you know, those peripherals have never, never really taken off. But the thing that I think gets forgotten sometimes is where I think all these peripherals can be extremely interesting is because if you're in some kind of technical application, if you're doing technical work, if you're doing something where a feed of data needs to be accessible to you but not dominant in your field of vision, I think there's a lot of application there that we can see yet to come. But whether these will turn into popular end-user devices for consumers, I think it still very much remains to be seen. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to mention a National Geographic article. It's just uh, kind of a fun one, not a standalone, not really necessarily tied to some others. Uh, but LIDAR is this real amazing technology that scans the Earth and allows the invisible to become visible. So this is National Geographic on February the 2nd. Laser scan reveals Maya megapolis below Guatemalan jungle. And I'll share as an aside... Uh, I got to uh, study in Mexico City on a Fulbright scholarship after I graduated from the Air Force Academy. And so I lived in Mexico City and I got to travel down to, um, uh, you know, Central America a little bit, Panama, El Salvador, Guatemala. And really the highlight of that trip, because I'm a big Star Wars fan, was taking a, an airplane, flying to uh, out of Guatemala City up to Tikal. And Tikal, if you know, Star Wars Episode Four, where the rebels have their final base when uh, off Yavin Four when they're you know launching their attack on Death Star. Anyway, it was it was Tikal. So this is amazing because we have not. There have been some interesting biases historically in archaeology and just in terms of thinking about the development of of uh, humanity that the tropics were not a place where we had very complex civilizations. And this article brings out some of that. And we estimated, guesstimated maybe a million people, but now they're thinking it may have been more like 10 million people living in this megapolis and these uh, highways that, you know, connected the different parts of, of, um, the, the cities were, you know, allowing them to travel not only in rainy seasons, but in dry seasons. And they've got, you know, there's fortresses and, and, um, you know, protective battlements and things like that. And just, it's amazing. And so the vid, there's a video link that you can check out that, uh, you know, as a STEM teacher, I would have definitely been sharing this with my, my kids saying, whoa, check this curiosity link out. I mean, these guys, it's, it's like they're using the force where they've got this, you know, massive wall of screens. And then he says, let's take off the, you know, forest jungle. And then, you know, does his hand like this. And then all of a sudden the jungle disappears and you just see the outline of the terrain and they're able to, they actually think that they've, uh, identified a, a previously unknown pyramid, which may be an untouched tomb of one of the wealthiest kings that ruled over Tikal in this area. So, um, yeah, pyramids are pretty fascinating. We've had, you know, Egypt in the news with a new scanned, um, you know, uh, space inside, I think, the Great Pyramid at Giza, which still remains to, you know, see what's exactly in that. But really, really cool and awesome stuff. So, Jason, is this having you contemplate, you know, after the doctorate, just switching over to archaeology and moving to South America? Uh, it No, but what it did have me contemplating is how much I miss teaching geography, because I would have been all over this um, with my, my geography students. The only class I taught, actually, that, that's well, mostly true. The only class I taught every year of my career was was uh, freshman uh, world cultures or freshman geography. It's a, a class I hold near and dear to my heart for exactly this kind of stuff. And it's interesting. It's, I think it's fairly rare to find a great topic that goes across so many different disciplines in a classroom. But this particular article kind of uh, um, made that claim to me, uh, thinking about how to use that with students. But yeah, really amazing stuff. And, um, you know, all these uh, studies of, of the past and, and different ways of looking at things, it's, I love how technology is impacting those as well. And um, there was another article that was some time ago that talked about uh, tests that they sometimes do now with old books and they can tell things like, uh, you know, was, uh, uh, was was one of the readers during this time of a 400-year-old book a smoker? So they could go back and kind of start testing things related to that. And the amount of information we can get that science is enabling us to do is in such wonderful, detailed ways. Uh, pretty extraordinary stuff. And, and I think this would be a powerful metaphor. I know you're getting 
a number of presentations ready for NCCE and, uh, you know, thinking about making the invisible visible. That is a powerful yes. metaphor when we talk about assessment and we talk about the role that technology can play in our lives and specifically in our classrooms. So I, I can see, you know, sharing that and then, you know, challenging teachers to, to seek the ways in which technology is going to make invisible things visible as far as student learning. It, that's a, that's a nice. A nice little metaphor, what, which, by the way, what are you talking more like Google search history and privacy and some of that kind of stuff or Google Chrome extensions? Where, where are you going at NCCE with your presentations? I have several uh, presentations there. Um, Mike Agustinelli, my partner in crime, and I will be doing our annual review of our 30 favorite newish tools for teachers. Um, I will be speaking on my dissertation topic, which is intelligent personal assistance and their impact on engagement in K-12 classrooms. I'll also be speaking on my Chrome OS list, which is something we've talked about here in the past uh, at the podcast, uh, which is a project I work on to update uh, various Chrome properties. Um, I am also speaking on Bored and Brilliant, the Manoush Zamarodi book that was released a couple of months ago that talks about the role of uh, kind of constant streams of information in our divergent thinking. And so I will be presenting on that. And she actually has a podcast this week where she's interviewing uh, an NPR reporter that wrote a recent book that was released a few weeks ago on screen time, like with advice for screen times for family that I did buy the book this morning. We'll probably integrate some of that information as well. And then Mike and I will also also be speaking on uh, a recipe for a successful uh, distance learning program build. Awesome. Sounds good. I wish I could be there to, to see it. Where would you like to head next? Well, um, I, I think I coined a term last week, and if this ends up taking off, I want credit for it. So um, the term is a technology correction, and it feels like that starting in 2016, we started experiencing what I now think of as a technology correction, that its growth uh, was unprecedented. It wiggled its way into our lives like nothing else has in, in human culture's existence. And we are now starting to come to terms with the fact that maybe we need to replace it somewhere in our lives. We need to reconfigure how it impacts us in our culture. And so there's been um, an interesting uh, number of articles, and, and Wes and I have actually talked about uh, this a couple of different times in a couple of different contexts in the history of the podcast. But first and foremost, the Register reported on February 5th that a group of geeks have gotten together, and these are people that were early employees of places like Facebook and Google have gotten together to, and I think the media overplay this just a little bit, but basically battle the technology that they helped invent. And you've heard evidence of this a lot in the last six months or so. The one I keep thinking about is Sean Parker speaking to the media about how dangerous Facebook was and that We've had Facebook in the hands of kids now for, for you know, uh, uh, over a decade, and we don't really know what it's going to do to our culture and society. And I think that's a, you know, a, a very advanced um, and maybe aggressive way of, of, of putting the revolution that social media has brought to us. But the bottom line is that uh, these, a group of these folks have started a nonprofit organization that's looking into this, and they call it the Center for Humane Technology. And they're going to start to become advocates, and I would assume engage in research behavior, behavior, commentary, opinion, um, uh, uh, other cultural pieces uh, to try to figure out what this technology means and whether or not we should be battling it because of whatever it does to us that's considered to be inappropriate. And interestingly enough, they paired up with one other popular group that, that also looks at this kind of notion of balance. It's Common Sense Media, uh, an organization I personally think is a, a very wonderful and, and, and um, powerful organization that does, I think, fair, I almost called it fair and balance. It's not fair and balance. It is a fair look at the things that it examines and criticizes for the purpose of giving advocacy advice to people like parents and teachers for that matter. So I guess to start with, Wes, um, are you ready to join up with humane technology? I am to a degree, right? I think our digital citizenship conversations, I was uh, leading a group of uh, kids and parents tonight at our church. And tomorrow morning, I give two presentations at school for parents uh, about digital citizenship. Uh, we talk about wellness, health, balance. These things have got to be parts of our conversation. As we're, as we're becoming transhuman, we don't want the computers to, you know, take away our humanity. So I actually had shared the link back to 2016 about Tristan Harris, who's one of the, the co-founders of this group. 
um, on Sunday at that presentation. I'll share it again tomorrow with parents. And, um, you know, the, the slide I, I brought out was, they say the race for attention is eroding the pillars of our society in mental health, our children, social relationships, and our democracy. And, you know, we're glimpsing dimly into all of this, especially when it comes to politics and, you know, democracy. We had a pretty good article last week, I think, saying, you know, the Russian hackers that, that pulled stuff off in the election weren't just the most amazing coders ever. They leveraged the tools that have been provided for advertisers and really anybody that wants to pony up money uh, to utilize social media networks to be able to influence. And so I'm really interested in, in what they're doing. I think that these kinds of these kind of critiques have always appealed to me, right? I mean, years ago, I did a session I called something about remember the Luddites, you know, and, and being critical of technologies. And I'm not saying we, you know, burn and destroy the, the looms of what, you know, whatever the loom of today is, right? Because the Luddites in England were very concerned about having their jobs, you know, displaced. And so they were, uh, they're being violent. I'm, you know, we're not, not going that far, but I, I think it's really healthy to have your critical hat on as you look at technologies. And, and actually I don't think it's just fun or, or engaging. I think we've got uh, moral responsibilities, uh, ethical responsibilities when it comes to these, because the people who say, we don't know what it's going to do. They're right. I mean, we're, building the plane as we fly it. We were talking uh, right. Sunday about, you know, social dating apps, Tinder. Like, how do you help your own child or kids in your class be ready for college or maybe even high school when a lot of interactions are going to happen and are happening on these kinds of, of social dating apps? And it's just, it's a real wild west out there. So I think there's a lot of good things they're bringing forward. It is interesting, as I think that first article you brought out pointed to it. So now that they've cashed in, everything we created was bad. You know, so these are possibly some folks that that are in a pretty good financial situation because of what they've created. But I'm interested that they're not just targeting consumers. They're also trying to target developers and get coders to think like design ethicists. That's what Tristan Harris was at Google encouraging coders to think about the ethics of what they're creating and then how they might create, I guess, softer, softer, gentler, you know, not, not harmful uh, apps and, and platforms and things like that. So it's a, but we're in, we're in a slippery slope. I mean, we're really racing as fast as the, the bits and the, and the chips can take us, you know, down this road, but it's going to be important for us to try and be intentional and not, you know, not lose track of what's important. And especially, you know, if this is the Neil Postman, you know, lover in me that wants to say, let's not just succumb to the, the glitz, the fancy and the, and the technology. Um, let's, let's be critical thinkers and, and let's yep. consider, Hey, when, when do we need a timeout? When do we need a fast? How, how do we need to make sure, you know, we, we have agency over the devices versus the devices having agency over us. Absolutely the case. And, you know, and I, you'll hear both Wes and I t sometimes take this cautious line, perhaps balance line and things. But, you know, we both recognize this technology is powerful and amazing, but it's also powerful and amazing. Right. And those can powerful and amazing can't be are not always super positive tools that sometimes they can be very negative effects in your life. And so, you know, thinking about that in terms of balance, especially in context of education, right? Kids look at you adults in order to, uh, you know, build patterns, right? If you're doing it, it's perceived to be okay because you are an important adult in students' lives. And so if you can even talk about balance and talk about the notion of, of, of screen time and addiction and that sort of thing, I think that is a, a really meaningful piece of this. So I just want to repeat that if technology correction becomes a popular way of describing this movement, I would like it to be referred to as NIFER technology correction. There you go. Sure. Hey, in our chat room, Peggy uh, asked the good question of who will make the decision about what is humane technology. Uh, and Scott comments that the Facebook messaging app for kids seems a little scary. He doesn't have personal experience, but it seems Facebook is trying to get its hooks into kids. I mean, you know, to a degree, that's what all the tech companies, I think, are, are wanting to do. I mean, th that's why Google is, is so heavily invested in the education market. You know, let's get everybody loving Google tools and then, you know, they'll stay with them for life. Um, but yeah, it's all of, all of this and the regulatory landscape, which either evolves or dramatically emerges surrounding privacy and regu you know, regulation of these things is going to be 
pretty important. So did, did Facebook drop messenger kids or did they, did they step back from that? I haven't actually tracked that. Um, there was a couple of articles where they're getting a lot of um, aggressive criticism for it. And I want to say it's the humane technology folks that that's one of the apps they're focusing on. Or maybe it's common sense media, but whether they dropped it or not, that man, they're taking a lot of heat for it. Okay. Here's uh, CNN money um, on January 30th. Health experts urge Facebook to shut down Messenger Kids. So child development advocates calling on them to discontinue the app, which is targeted at 6 to 12-year-olds. So, yeah, that's um, probably not something that the humane technology folks are going to embrace either. Yep. Yikes. Okay, where to next, sir? Uh, let's see. Um, why you, let's talk CDs. You you put one in there about Best Buy. Really? I'm not going to be able to get my CDs? <laughs> uh, it's funny because um, uh, there's a couple of reasons why this article makes me laugh. First, Best Buy has announced they will no longer be selling CDs, which is, in my mind, interesting from the standpoint that that's actually was quite, quite a bit of real estate in most modern Best Buys. Like, I remember noticing that I went to buy an SD card there maybe I, six months ago or so and noticed that there were a couple of rows of, of, of CDs there. And uh, they also have games and, and DVDs and, and Blu-rays and stuff, but quite a few CDs were for sale um, on that particular day. And so that's going to be a spot for them to fill. So hopefully they can, you know, expand their television and watch machine section to that. But um, I've also noticed a, a lot of other things about CDs as of late. And CD technology is uh, you know, nearing 30 years old. Uh, about 25, 26 years ago, they became much more widely available. And then, of course, the Discman releases in the early 1990s uh, really made CDs mobile, along with uh, disc players and cars. But uh, I, I've seen a couple of references to people like buying CDs like it's vintage. And I just, I crack up every time I see something like that because it, it's, it's surely a sign, Wes, that you and I are getting along there in age. But um, the other piece, though, is that it's it's so interesting how that's so quickly become you know, such, such a, a dated and, and, and old technology. It is. And two, two things that remind, I, I showed the onion video tonight about Blockbuster and the, you know, spoof on how the old people used to go, you know, to a store that was a mile away and have to take a chance that their video was in stock and all that stuff. <clears throat> but then also, um, you know, two weeks ago, my father-in-law's memorial service or whatever, two, a week, it was a week ago on the weekend. Uh, you know, the, they insisted on a DVD for the slideshow. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and I can get why, from a compatibility standpoint, that is nice because, hey, it's a DVD I put in. It's not a flash drive that did you make it on a Mac or a PC and what format is that, you know, video encoded, et cetera. But that was the, the, the first time I have had to ask and find uh, a DVD burn, you know, to use a burner in a few years and it might, it could be the last time too. Um, and so anyway, just a sign of the times. Uh, and I guess here's, here's a connection as far as tech technology in the classroom. Um, we do need to attend to where our, our stuff is saved, right? What kind of media, you know, I don't think I can now get anything off of the zip drives, which are probably still in my garage. You know, we've got a bunch of, of old media, um, you know, we've got video. We we inherited from <clears throat> Shelly's dad a bunch of uh, of digital video, DV8 format tapes and things, and we're hanging on to some cameras. Um, but yeah, that that whole kind of thing. I mean, my parents have uh, old slides, you know, in the in the basement, and, and that kind of thing's not not quite as tough, right? To be able to have a slide scanner or something. But when it comes to you know, the, the the kind of video format that you have, you know, how is it going to live on? Those, those are questions that may be more for personal kind of family heritage and history, uh, but we need to attend to it, right? Where is it saved? Uh, what format is it in? And will it, will it be able to live on after, after we're gone? Uh, if it's, if it's in an old antiquated format, you know, the answer might be no. Okay, well, speaking of old antiquated formats, uh, there's been a lot of energy in the last couple of weeks uh, to 5G Internet, largely because of the uh, focus on it by the Trump administration, where they may or may not have some role in pushing Sprint into bringing 5G uh, wireless communication to United States markets. But there was a pretty interesting article on... 
February 5th from uh, CNN Money talking about uh, the impact of 5G Internet. And uh, it's mostly pretty obvious stuff of what fast wireless Internet could generally bring, but they were talking about two applications that were super interesting. The first one were doctors performing telemedicine procedures, basically, with robotic arms. But right now, the latency that comes from that, even with wired Internet connections, um, is too much um, to uh, be able to rely on those for real-time, both video to you and then your actions back via your robotic hands. And so that's been a real issue. And they also talked about, in, in maybe a more lighter way, the notion of bringing in like a virtual, virtual music teacher that could sit above you or next to you while you're playing the piano, for example. It would be real-time enough that it would make sense because there would be no latency in those communications. And so I you know, can think of a lot of things that in a world where there's you know, infinite infinitely fast uh, wireless internet available, it seems to me we could do a lot of really interesting things uh, to be able to kind of see and peer and be live in multiple places around the world. So Wes, do you think 5G is coming to Oklahoma City anytime soon? Uh, you know, a few years off, but yeah, I mean, winter is coming, 5G is coming. Uh, it reminds me at, at Texas Tech when I was there for five years as the director of distance learning in the College of Education. Uh, we work with the university's uh, video conferencing group and telemedicine was and still is, you know, increasing. It, it's amazing here in Oklahoma, uh, we can opt for a telemedicine appointment. So without lots of prearrangement, you know, we can come and I don't remember if it's Skype or, you know, what, what kind of technology, but the joke there with the technicians was, you know, drop a few packets, you know, lose your heartbeats or, or whatever. I mean, it, latency was a big issue. And that also reminds me, it, it was a bigger deal. Well, and it depends who you're working with, I guess, at the university or with AT&T, when you would talk about making a commodity internet call versus, you know, one that we were using our own T1 lines and, and uh, on, on network and, and today, with the way that you know cable modems and home internet access has exploded, I haven't actually heard anybody talk about that kind of thing before. So we definitely uh, th this was a milestone that was related to this personally, as I finally retired my own my own Tanberg H323 video conferencing unit, which I had uh, inherited and acquired as a result of, of different work that I had done in the past, and it was still at home because that's where. You know, not too many years ago, I was teaching up to Montana, uh, working with the, the fine folks there to, you know, do some uh, some uh, graduate courses with the with the University of Montana. So anyway, I just finally decided that's that's that the boat has sailed. I'm going to be doing go to webinar, you know, Google Hangout, you know, some some kind of go to meeting and the video conference. Anyway, that's but it's the, the whole thing with medicine is. Uh, it definitely requires a different level of precision and it'll, it's also where it follows the money, right? There's a lot of money in medicine. So as, as we need to reach rural folks, which Montana's got a lot, Oklahoma does as well. This is going to be a growth industry. So um, the, it does require though, that, that last mile internet, you know, come to you in your rural community. So it appears that the 5g is going to be able to deliver where they're, you know, we're not, rolling out fiber to rural Oklahomans or rural Montana citizens. Um, so I think 5G will be the, the promise of incredible bandwidth. And it sounds great. We'll see if it, if it pays off. What does that mean for you in school, Jason, if students can download an entire, you know, 720, you know, whatever, 1080, high, high definition, maybe not 4K, but in a few seconds, the entire movie is downloaded. Does that change your calculus if you're a technology director or a classroom teacher? I think it does. The the one piece that I would be really excited about if uh, 5G helps push both wired and wireless communication speeds is unblocking of YouTube. Like, I cannot begin to describe uh, the number of times that I've run into issues, both in serving my program and then dealing with districts that, uh, and I'm sure there are good legitimate ban bandwidth issues related to YouTube. Some people do it for content purposes, which I think is less defendable. But those that uh, choose to block YouTube for students because they don't have the bandwidth to serve it up. And I would like to get to a point 
where, you know, students can download what they want, can stream what they want, and we don't have to care whether they're doing something educational or they're watching a Kesha video, right? It doesn't really matter because the Internet's so plentiful that it's delivered to you um, instantly, no matter the, the, the size of the video. So that's, that's where I think there could be a lot of change here. Whenever we can have any technology become a, a fast alternative to wired technology, and I know, Wes, you mentioned that you've gone from, uh, what was it, 75 uh, megabits down to uh, 270 megabits down. Over three times faster with the new modem. Yeah, over over 5G Wi-Fi. Right. Oh, right. sorry. Over. Well, okay. And then we're confused. Yeah, this isn't wireless 5G. Right. This is there's 2.8 megahertz or gigahertz. <laughs> get, get all our terms right. 2.8 right. gigahertz home Wi-Fi, and then there's the five gigahertz band. And so this is the five gigahertz band yeah. that has that. On and, that note, actually, no, go ahead. No, then I'll. Well, and, and, you know, I really think that, that, uh, anything that can do that, particularly for consumers, will eventually make its way into schools. And, you know, s- students should never have to worry about bandwidth at school. I don't care what you're doing. Well, and Scott is talking in the chat room about the music, the musician performance side of that, you know, being able to perform in real time. And yeah, that's be amazing. In yeah, fact, that, that would, would that would revolutionize music in schools for another reason. There are so many tiny schools in Montana that can neither afford or attract a music teacher and, you know, may only have need for a third time music teacher total. But if that, that could be more real time and direct a, you know, a virtual uh, orchestra or give a private lesson one to another without that latency. I know actually the private lessons do happen quite a bit over Skype uh, in rural areas, but um, to take away the latency for that would be unbelievable. So related article from the wire cutter back on January the 22nd. And if you're not familiar with the wire cutter from the New York times, it is a fantastic source of uh, comparisons when you're looking to purchase all kinds of things. And I'd actually turned to it when I was looking for a new cable modem, when I learned that ours was not capable of, you know, 300 megabit, like we were supposed to be receiving. So this article is titled the best, Wi-Fi mesh networking kits for most people. And so I am looking at this. I'd actually been considering the Eero. And then, Jason, you've got the Google um, uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, this is recommending either the Netgear Orbi or uh, actually the Eero comes in high. And, and so, anyway, I was looking at this the other night and looking at Amazon reviews. And it looks like for the average house with this Netgear Orbi, um, which is more in the $300 range. Some of these can go up to $500. Um, you can get by with two, one that you have at your base station and then one that you put in the middle of your house. So we were talking about this a little before the show. What is your current analysis of the Google Mesh Wi-Fi? And if you were to buy today, would you still go with Google or are you going to go with, would you go with something else? Um, both are great questions. I really like the Google um, uh, Wi-Fi system that I have installed in my house, and I have two stations, one uh, that's right at my access point, and then one kind of at the farthest end of my house because it's in the center. I want to be able to cover a wing of my home. And it's it's been super great. Uh, we had reported a couple weeks ago, here on the, uh, weeks ago here on the podcast that my previous Wi-Fi system, one of the reasons why that might have been slow is because uh, the Google uh Chrome, or I'm sorry, the Chromecast in my house might have sent uh, some a lot of uh, quickly sent data when it was uh, turned on and then connected to the internet. So that might explain why I went to the the Google Wi-Fi, but I don't regret it at all. It's uh, it's got great data involved. I can track a lot of things. It's available via an app. Um, it's easy for me to reset things. Um, it keeps track of speed over time. It's really been a, a great uh, addition to my home technology collection. Awesome. Uh, I w- let's do a couple quick articles, and I think we got a Geek of the Week. I think you put this in Ars Technica, February 5th. Uh, Windows 10S becoming a mode, not a version, as Microsoft shakes up its pricing. How crazy is that? You know, we've been tracking this, wondering if, ooh, Microsoft is trying to be like Google and the Chromebooks, and 10S is going to be their new Chrome, or at least that was my perception of it. Right. Um, what do you make of that? There are so many things I thought of when I read this article. The first and foremost is I installed Windows 10S on, it was a Lenovo T450, which is kind of their uh, business-level uh, laptop computer. I had bought it used a couple years ago. It's it's a good machine. And I put Windows 10S on there, or Windows 10S on there, and it was wonderful. It, 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 it just ran into a major problem, which is the Windows App Store does not have enough uh, applications on it for me to stay in. 
in there. Now, as a Chrome browser user, Chromebook user, or Chromebook user myself, uh, the Chromebook, which only has a, a web browser, has been fine for me um, because I, I can use mostly web apps to get my job done. But the addition uh, uh, of Android apps, which has happened in the last two years to the Chromebook, has made that way more functional for me. And so it feels like that a lot of Windows users were kind of criticizing Chromebooks because they were only browsers. And even after the App Store started, they said, well, you can install real software on there. It seems like that Microsoft is taking a step backwards here. And to kind of summarize the article, Windows 10 S is no longer going to be a separate edition. It's basically going to be the Windows experience for most home users that buy a brand new laptop and uh, you can pay extra to unlock the kind of full version of, of Windows, which allows you to install what's called legacy apps. But otherwise, you'd be stuck in the Chrome, or I'm sorry, the Windows App Store. So crazy, crazy development. So does Windows 10 hold any um, allure to US as an end user? No. <laughs> But it, but it is in terms of watching what's going to happen with it, because as we've talked about on the show repeatedly, the evolution of operating systems is a really big deal from a security standpoint in terms of OSs that really are, are you know, able to continually update themselves quickly. You know, it is so painful still. We've got a, a Windows, we've got a couple Windows 7 uh, labs that are used primarily with our language teachers and... Uh, you know, we, updates are a challenge when you use deep freeze, which is software that locks the machine so that if kids change wallpaper or install a virus, you know, it doesn't, uh, it just goes back to, to the same image. And, you know, I think we spent a couple hours yesterday in those language labs actually running updates and it was just, it was, was kind of pathetic because it was just over and over and over again with, and this was deep with deep freeze turned off, but you know, you get this patch and then you can get this patch and then you can get this patch. So, you know, we're going to continue to run windows systems for the foreseeable future. I definitely don't, you know, see our business office and, and many other use, you know, a fair number of users, um, about 90, Ninety-five percent of our faculty are on MacBooks, but uh, I'm I'm very interested to see this, and and Microsoft is super relevant. But I think it's kind of shocking to see them make that kind of a pivot when yeah. I thought they were headed a different direction. And the other thing I I makes me think of is just how important the App Store is in your developer base, right? Apple has done a fantastic job cultivating its developer base. Google continues to do that with the well. I'm just thinking about the the summer, you know. Um, developer conference that they do and just, you know, how popular it is and, and just they've, you know, there's, there's a ton of apps in the store and I don't know how many, you know, folks are making their full-time living, you know, just with off of those apps, but with, <clears throat> with Google IO, which we've, you know, joked would be a, a great uh, time for us to come together some year if we could swing our, our uh, professional budgets and all of that. Yeah. And nerd buddy that. weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Google is smart. Apple is smart to cultivate that base and grow that base. And Microsoft has not done that. So that's another reason why, ooh, where's the Windows phone? Oh, it's gone. You know, and now where's, you know, Windows S? Oh, it's, you know, changing around. So lots of, lots of, of uh, change. But on the good side, I guess, um, you know, companies are going to need to be agile to succeed. So maybe that's, <laughs> we're not used to seeing Microsoft pivot like this and maybe it's a good sign because if something's not working, then they're going to go a different direction. But wow, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still watching with interest. Minecraft, a friend of mine is down in uh, Texas and Austin at TCEA, which is the, the, you know, next to Florida, I think it, and, and, and ISTE, the biggest, biggest tech conference in the country. And he got to spend all day Tuesday, you know, basically with Microsoft doing Minecraft and, and all of that, but it's all of that's a gateway drug. You know, they want you to pay $5 per user per year. And then with certain things like coding aspects, you have to be running a windows system and it's, it's an entree. It's an entree drug for a 365. So anyway, it's uh, interesting to see what Microsoft is doing. Um, you know, when we look at office licensing specifically, at some point we're going to have to see if we jump on that subscription bandwagon, which we haven't done with Adobe products broadly we've done that in a couple isolated spots and how do we navigate that with microsoft oh, everybody wants you to subscribe and keep right. paying can you believe that what's up with that totally okay sir right. shall we get the weekend 
we we shall. I'll go quickly, and I just have one. Uh, this is really cool. The Common Voice Project by Mozilla. So with artificial intelligence and smart assistants being a big deal, uh, part of it is you know how. What, what is the library of voices that are being used and are they able to, to recognize everybody? Can you even change voices? You know, Google Home here recently allowed us to change voice. I've got, I would say the male voice, but I think it's, they've just said it's not the female voice. Uh, sounds like a male voice to me, but anyway, this is a, an initiative by the open, um, uh, nonprofit Mozilla that, that brings us Firefox to teach machines how real people speak. So you can contribute uh, right on the web browser or the web page. You can validate sentences. They've got apps that you can download. And, you know, here's a way you can participate in AI. And from a classroom standpoint, you know, download this app and you can have some really good conversations with, with kids about how this, these technologies are maturing and also the importance of having an open platform uh, similar to AI in general with the OpenAI initiative, that it's not just proprietary. You know, we've got shared code base and the, this whole vision of a shared project to power the AI applications and tools of tomorrow. I almost got stuck on that website listening to those clips. So, um, yeah, very interesting stuff. And uh, certainly the the bringing in of the human workers to help with that process. So thank you, Wes. My Geek of the Week is actually a bit of a repeat from, from a long time ago, but I discovered on the Android platform the light apps that are available. And the two that I've recommended in the past are YouTube Go, which allows you to easily download copies of YouTube apps to your phone for watching later. And the idea is, is when you're uh, in an area that has Wi-Fi available to you, you can download the videos and then watch them when you don't have access to that. And then Facebook Lite, which is a lighter, faster version of Facebook, but I found a really great article from Make Use Of on 5 February 2018 that gives you uh, 11 examples, these types of apps that you can install on Android. All of them kind of are for low bandwidth situations, um, and I also think they're great because they're usually a lot faster than some of the bloated apps that come with commercial services. Quick question. Should I be able to run that two-factor on any Android-compatible uh, watch, or is that going to yes. vary, vary with? Well, Android-compatible, if it's Android Wear, yes. If it's There are smart watches that have full versions of Android on them. I don't know about those, but definitely for sure the Android Wear watches, yes. Android Wear, okay. All right. Very good. Okay, Wes, where can people find you out on the Internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. Uh, have also been continuing to develop the digital citizenship website, digsit.us. I'll be traveling to Ohio, to Columbus on Monday and keynoting the Ohio Educational Technology Conference on Tuesday, uh, doing a keynote that day and then Wednesday doing a breakout session, focusing a little more on privacy and surveillance and digital citizenship, some of those themes. And so I will be sharing those out on Twitter as well as the Digsit website. And probably we'll take a recorder and try to maybe see if we can get something recorded as well for, from that. So how about you? I am Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I uh, blog at the NCCE Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncce.org. And as it turns out, next week it's finally here, uh, February 14th to the 16th. In Seattle, Washington, is the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference. Uh, Dan Rather is our our closing keynote for the conference, and we really look forward uh, to seeing you there. Don't come to Seattle. Beautiful city. Awesome uh, uh, things to do there if you've never been. And you can come to the NCC conference at the Washington Convention Center. So that's next week, but right now, this business here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we like to talk about technology and its impact on classrooms and learning. We are here most Wednesday nights, except a program note. We will not be here next Wednesday. Wes is traveling, and I will be at NCCE in Seattle. But the week after, we will come back on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, 3 a.m. UTC, for those of you that prefer to set your watch uh, to Greenwich Mean Time. But you can either join us live in the chat room. We always appreciate when people jump in and be part of that conversation. Or you can find us either on YouTube at our YouTube channel, on the website, edtechsr.com, or wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. So thank you for listening. We appreciate you as a listener. And we bid you a good evening and good night. Have a great night.